What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. I have never had a job before, but I can assure you that I am very excited about this opportunity. All I need is a typist who can answer the phone. Have reached the office of Mr. Edward Gray. <laughs> it's very dull work. I like dull work. I'm not here. Hi! How'd it go? I got it. This letter has three typing errors in it. I'm sorry, I'm. I'm... Type it again. This needs more sugar. Six copies of these. What is wrong with you? You can get a much bigger voice out of that tiny throat. This is the office of Mr. E. Edward Gray. (laughs) I'm the type of guy who wants to get married and have a kid. (laughs) If you need any more typing, I can come back later. Thank you, Miss Holloway. Good night. Come into my office. Finally. This isn't just about typos. It's your behavior. What about my behavior? It's very bad. I'm very fond of you. I'm your secretary. If we can fully experience pain, we can live a more meaningful life. (laughs) He's the best. Are you doing something sexual? There are other ways to show your feelings. We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? I've found someone to love in a way that feels right. Just a scoop of cream potatoes. Four peas. As much ice cream as you'd like to eat. Could you get me a cup of coffee? Do you really want to be my secretary? Yes, I do. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Rachel Kramer-Bussell. Hi. Good to have you aboard. This week, we are looking at the 2002 film Secretary. The film was directed by Steven Shainberg with a screenplay by Aaron Cressida Wilson and based on a short story by Mary Gateskill. The film stars Maggie Gyllenhaal as Lee Holloway, a young woman who has spent a little bit of a stint in a psych ward. Back at home with her dysfunctional family, she gets a job as a secretary to get out of the house. Her boss, lawyer Mr. Gray, is played by James Spader. The film traces their relationship while Lee deals with her home life. We will definitely 
probably be getting into some spoilers about the film, so if you haven't seen it, I recommend turning off this podcast, going to watch the movie, and coming back to join us. We will be here. So, Rachel, when was the first time that you saw Secretary, and what did you think? I do remember when it came out. I hosted an event for it. I co-hosted an event for it at a bar, and so I saw it around when it came out. Um, But I feel like, because I just rewatched it today, I feel like I remembered less about the specifics of the movie than that it was such a big deal at the time. Like it was so out there, you know, for, for a mainstream movie to be having spanking as its main topic. So then I think when I rewatched it, I mean, I thought it was excellent, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily sexually explicit in terms of nudity or anything, or even really what they did together. Like, in, so in my memory, it was much more, racy i think i mean not that it wasn't racy you know what i'm saying like i think the times have evolved so now you know we we have had more sexually explicit movies like we're more used to that i I don't think if this came out now it, it would cause the sensation that it did when it came out does that make sense it makes total sense and i completely agree with you yeah there was i remember going around in toronto years and years ago this came out in 2002 so it was either like 2001 or 2002 going around the city and uh right around the time of the toronto film festival and seeing the posters for this and the poster image is very striking it's uh, a woman's behind and her legs and she's got stockings on and high heels and it just says secretary over the top of it it was just like oh what what is this and at the time you know james spader i've kind of gone back and forth with him he's always in his early years he seemed to almost always play kind of a creep and it took me a while to realize that james spader is really good at playing a creep but him as a person he's not necessarily a creep so it took me a little while to separate that out. But once I did, I've really grown to appreciate him, especially in movies like Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And it almost feels like the character from Sex, Lies, and Videotape could have easily gone and gotten a law degree and become Mr. Gray. You know, there's just this kind of like strangeness about him that is in the character of Mr. Gray. And I think that he is perfectly cast in this film. He just can really do some great things with his like nervous tics and everything. And he just really plays his character really well. I now feel ashamed. I have not seen sex lies and videotape, but I, I think this might be, might've been the first thing I saw him in. I will say everything I've seen him in after that, I, I think of him, you know, as this role, but I, I think I really learned a lot rewatching it because he is both dominant, obviously, but then very conflicted about it. And, you know, I think he did both of those very well. Yeah, I think that's the, really the fascinating part is that he is so conflicted about everything and just that he's not comfortable in this role. He is not confident at all in this role as a dominant or really it doesn't even feel like he's confident in his life, even though he's trying to be this you know, lawyer and everything, but he doesn't necessarily seem like he's the best lawyer in the world. He's working at this kind of rinky-dink office. It's funny because we're talking about this all so far in terms of him, while the name of the movie is Secretary and really Maggie Gyllenhaal is our focus, but he is such a fascinating character and she is always trying to learn more about him, as are we, the audience, that he's just so 
perfectly enigmatic that he'll let us in a little bit, just like he's kind of letting in Lee, but we never get to know him all the way through. I think why I said it wasn't as racy, but it was it was fascinating. Like I would watch it again, maybe not today again, but soon is because they are so both of them are really interesting psychologically. Like it's not just about the spanking as a sexual act. It's about what it represents for both of them. And also uh, I know we're going to talk about 50 shades later, but I think what was interesting is that they really never discuss what's happening between them. Obviously we can infer that she enjoys it because we see her, masturbating about it and and you know prompting it um and we can you know tell that he's both into it but also like you know repelled by his own attraction to it but they never have a formal conversation about it at all i mean their entire verbal conversations are ostensibly about the work that she's doing and i think the work that she's doing is is kind of hilarious because you know, he says it several times, like all she's doing is typing and answering the phone. It's very, very basic. It's very dull work. I like dull work. It's kind of a strange time setting for the movie. Like I'm always trying to figure out exactly what year this is set in, but it just seems like this kind of like weird twilight time. Like they talk about, you know, we could be using computers, but he f- prefers to have typewriters. But yet it seems like it's really more uh, more modern day. I mean, the film comes out in 2002. I don't know if it feels like that particular time. It's just this kind of timeless space that it, it occupies. I agree. But then it was so hard to imagine that an office now just not using computers at all. Like that sort of struck me, like this typing. But but yet I was sort of hypnotized by all the typing. <laughs> yeah, to even think that there is a typing class where they're still using old school typewriters and everything. I mean, it reminded me of when I was in high school and this would have been like, or even junior high, I had to take a typing class. So that would have been like back in the, the late uh, 80s. So I'm just like, wow, there's still are classes out there where they're still using manual typewriters to teach people? Because it seems like they would have all moved on to computers by that time. I I guess they need the typing as a plot point for her to be making her mistakes. And also, I think there is something between the way she dresses for a lot of it. You know, she's not wearing like power suits or anything. You know, she's she's wearing she's almost old fashioned in her in her outfit. So I feel like there's a there is a sort of uh, I don't know if old fashioned is the right word for the the office setup, but certainly not modern. And just the color scheme and everything inside of that office. I mean, it just looks kind of drab, but kind of like just off a little bit. I want to say there's a lot of like greens and reds in there. And it just, I don't know, just the the setting itself just always kind of puts me on edge a little bit. I almost felt for a second as I, at the beginning, like, did he make up this job? Like, does he really even need a secretary? Like, how much business is he doing? Like, he just seems the things that she was doing. And I mean, yeah, we do see him on the phone. But, you know, his job sort of almost seemed I I felt like he he almost didn't need the job. Like he was just doing it like that's what he does. But I didn't really feel like he was like, 
I love being a lawyer. Yeah, and he has the paralegal coming in, so it's like, what is she doing there? And yeah, she's she's a very underdeveloped character, but she just kind of is in the background most of the time. And it's like, okay, yeah, she's Lee is really not needed in this office, though it's very telling that below his shingle outside, he's got a permanent secretary wanted yes. side yeah. where he just flips on the light to signal that he needs one. It's kind of like a reservation and side. And one of the first things we see is the other, the old secretary like storming out. You know, we don't really hear much about that. The office is completely destroyed too when she comes in. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely odd, but you know, the the more I watched it, the more... I felt like their oddness was complimentary, that his doing these compulsive exercises was the equivalent of her, you know, cutting in, on some level. Like, you know, they were both trying to exercise something. Yeah, let's talk about Lee, because she is a great character. I mean, when we first meet her, she's coming out of the hospital where she has spent uh, a little bit of time kind of being locked up as a patient. Uh, Patrick Bashao, I think is how you pronounce his name, but he's her doctor. Just real brief appearance here, and then a little bit more towards the end of the film. We'll definitely talk about that. And then we get her going home and experiencing this home life, which immediately is super stressful. Like she's almost just immediately plopped into her sister getting married. And we know that marriage can be super stressful, not just for the person who's getting married, but for every single person around them. So she's got that going on. She's got her dad, who's an alcoholic, uh, who's played by Stephen McCaddy. And she's got her mom, who's Leslie Ann Warren. And Leslie Ann Warren, though she can play a very calm centered person she plays manic people so well you know this is like color of night type of role here she's even like more unhinged than she was in that film she is just just looks bedraggled through the whole thing her hair never looks like it's completely you know been washed or or brushed or anything and she just always looks like she's on the edge of tears and so lee getting plopped back into this situation not good. And almost immediately she is running for the safety of her, basically her cutting implement. She's got this whole setup, uh, this box that she has where she had this ballerina and this stone that she sharpens the ballerina's foot on. And she uses that as of many other things as well, but she uses that to cut herself. And the pain definitely seems to be a, a great relief to her. There's a line that he says to her later about what the pain represents for her once they do start with the spanking. Why do you cut yourself, Lee? I don't know. Is it that sometimes the pain inside has to come to the surface and when you see evidence of the pain inside, you finally know you are really here? Then when you watch the wound heal, it's comforting, isn't it? That's a way to put it. He's also hinting at the spanking. I think this is when he he catches her doing it. And I thought that was a really interesting interpretation of it. And you see it on her face when he says that to her. She's like, oh, he is not. I mean, he's telling her not to do it, but he's not condemning her or just he's not horrified. He he wants to help her. But I I felt like that was in, in contrast to, you know, her family who, you know, 
barely know what's going on with her. Yeah, she seems like she is such an afterthought to everything. I mean, especially coming into that situation with her sister getting married. Her sister is the good sister. You know, everybody's just so happy for her. And, you know, it's just this idyllic kind of thing. Even though she's going to be moving into the pool house outside and in the screenplay, it's actually a, a, a trailer in their backyard kind of thing. Even with that, which I don't necessarily consider to be this thing to to aspire to she's still the good sister and she's the one that everybody holds in this high regard whereas lee is just this wallflower living in the background and it's almost like the good sister trish i think her name is kind of resents lee for having any attention paid to her especially like oh well you just you know tried to commit suicide and that's why you were thrown into this you know loony bin and yada yada and how dare you try to ruin my wedding is basically what it it amounts to even though it wasn't a suicide attempt it was more of just a i really need to cut myself and i cut too deep so which is an interesting thing you know the cutting has always been very fascinating to me as far as you know, what it represents, why people do it. I mean, it's just, there's definitely a release when it comes to pain. So it, it's fascinating to me that somebody would go to the extreme of, you know, hurting themselves in order to, for me, it feels like she's trying to take control of the situation. I mean, I think what struck me about her cutting and the other self-harm is later the way she pursues great, like is how determined she was to do all those things. You know, she, she's very, she has her rituals about them. She knows that it is meaningful to her. She isn't really that wallflower. I mean, she, she's, she is stronger than she might look. And she is not in a good situation. I mean, the whole idea of her dad, I mean, he's such an alcoholic that at one point he wanders off and wanders basically out of the movie for a while. And she gets into another really stressful situation at work where her dad calls her out of the blue and she doesn't know where he's at. So she's trying to talk to him. And meanwhile, this uh, character, Trisha, comes in. Trisha O'Connor, I want to say is her name, who... It seems like she is Mr. Gray's former love. We never get the whole story with that. But again, I kind of enjoy that, that there is that mystery to it. And she's the one who finally pegs Lee for what she is. Submissive. Excuse me? And then Lee tries again to exert herself by yelling at the person who's also on the phone because AT&T is calling, trying to offer long-distance service, which again puts it in a weird time frame. You know, we're talking about what time was this movie set, and I was just trying to explain 10-10-3-2-1 to somebody recently. (laughs) It's like, well, you see, when, when Ma Bell got broken up and yada, yada, yada. So it's like, yeah, there was a time when you were getting hassled every single night by calls from MCI and AT&T and all these people kind of new at this that's okay it's good to try new things that's what i tell people about 10 10 20 i use that all my calls up to 20 minutes or 99 cents i haven't signed up for that you don't have to just dial 10 10 20 then one and the number that's easy it sure is i knew you could do it that's another point where she's just completely stressed out again and again is looking for that release and it's great to me that we see at one point when she's bending over and um, trying to fix this mouse trap that uh, Mr. Grace sees all of the little bandages along her leg because we know she's been cutting, but we don't know the extent of it. And just to see all those tiny little band-aids. And again, they seem like they're very evenly spaced. Like this is 
a ritual for her, like, okay, the next one will be here kind of thing. I thought that was really just a funny line, like when that woman says submissive to her, like she yells at her, but like she doesn't use a full sentence. She just says submissive. And like she's it's it was just an interesting phrasing, you know, like just that she was clearly so incensed about that. Well, it's like how many times has Gray hired these submissive women, you know, and just like, oh, God, here's another one. It feels like going back a little in the movie to the when she's goes to meet with him like that scene was very interesting because he's like assessing her. It was it said a lot about her, too, because later in the in the movie, there's a conversation about sexual harassment. And I mean, the things he asks her, I think most people, if they were asked that at a job interview, would be like, fuck you. You know, she is like starving for someone to pay attention to her and like want to want to know about her. And he's actually the one who doesn't, like you said, like want to tell her anything about him. If I were in her shoes, I would take any job in the world just to get away from my, that house. Well, that's true, too. Yeah. And yeah, you talked about that conversation with, uh, I think it's with her sister and her sister's friends. Can you imagine going into a job interview and the person asks you the first thing is, are you pregnant or do you intend on getting yeah, pregnant? I mean, that's totally illegal. She was so amused by it, you know, and, and I felt like then he was in turn, you know, maybe he was testing her or yeah, it, w- it was definitely an odd interaction. And, and it did, you know, he, he is so odd that I was fascinated by him too. I love that during that interview, one of the questions that he asked her just seems so out of left field when he asked her, have you ever won an award? Who would ever ask you that? His whole office vibe was so not professional that that really, there, there was a moment there where I was like, does he like even really work? Like, or is he, is this just like a made up job that he just like has this office? Like he's some eccentric rich guy and he has this office and just like wants this woman to play this role. Like I really like his, his whole demeanor is, was just so bizarre. You know, I wouldn't hire him as my lawyer. No, no. I don't see him winning a lot of cases. Even though Lee says that he's the best when they're talking about, you know, my lawyer, blah, blah, blah. He's the best. Uh, Yeah, I don't see that. And he spends way too much time worrying about those weird flowers, catching mice, how much sugar he's got in his coffee. Even like the thing with the letters. I don't know. It's still so hard now to watch it because I would imagine people are sending those things via email. So, I mean, it's charming, but it was also like it was hard to take the work seriously, especially watching it in you know 2016. The other thing that I like about that conversation and him asking her if she's going to get pregnant is that it diametrically opposes the other male relationship in her life. The one that we haven't talked about at all, which is Peter, played by Jeremy Davies. Peter, again, another kind of odd duck, but really it seems like he would be a good match for Lee, but he wants things that she doesn't necessarily want, one of those being babies. And he wants to have this really normal picket fence, white bread type of life. You know, he is living the dream, working at JCPenney's and everything. So, and it just feels like he's really 
rushing through this whole thing like i'm of age now i need to get married i need to introduce my my girlfriend to my parents and it just feels so odd i mean you know, there are nice moments of their relationship like when they're at the laundromat but then other times it's just like wow this is really moving fast i think they especially you know once she starts her thing with you know gray she she is realizing how much that life like isn't for her. They're so different. I mean, I, there's a scene where. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission at us customs and border protection. We go beyond to protect more than borders from ship to shore, air to ground cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Then later, she she's with Peter. Yeah. Um. See, I, I mean, I, I watched him. I just, I wasn't like, you know, fixated. I, was, I felt bad for him. I did feel bad for him. I did too. I felt less bad for him than I felt for like, any of the boyfriends that uh, Meg Ryan ever had in movies where she would dump them because they just weren't exciting enough, apparently, you know, like the Bill Pullman character, you know, like these kind of guys where it's just like, these are nice guys, like really nice guys. Whereas Peter, like, okay, yeah, I feel bad for him and everything, but yeah, he's just, he will find somebody else and really like, I think he pictures her as this ideal that she just is not you know she is a great person but she's not the person that he ultimately needs to be with he doesn't really know who she is and maybe that's because she doesn't really let him in on that but still you know when she is like over his lap and wanting him to spank her and he just has no idea like it would never occur to him in a million years yeah, and that look on her face when she realizes that he is clueless. I mean, you feel bad for both of them, but it's just like, yeah, he's he just doesn't get it. And there isn't that power play going on there. Because, yeah, the, the heart of the movie, which happens about an hour in, maybe just a little bit less than an hour, is that first banking scene. And I think that they lead up to it so well. I mean, they really are just kind of ratcheting the tension between them. And there are all these like little scenes before the spanking scene, which really, you know, plays well into this, this whole thing where gray sends her out to the garbage to oh, find yeah. some papers <laughs> <laughs> and he's there looking at her and can't control himself. Next thing you know, he's doing uh, sit-ups in the office. Yeah. And she is like, let me, you know, do whatever he asks. Like she is really, you can tell that at that point that he's just been testing her all along. I mean, I think he's testing her when he asks her, you know, the pregnant question, you know, like, will she put up with just ridiculousness, you know, his weird, weird habits and things. And then I guess like, will she do it because he's her boss? 
It's so good. Just the whole idea of, again, going back to that stupid typewriter and all the typos and everything. And that's ultimately what finally sends them over the edge and into this first spanking scenario. And that first spanking scene, and it, actually, when I think about it, I think it might be, the, it is the only spanking scene, if memory serves, because there's like some almost spanking later on and there's some you know other play going on and everything there's a montage that happens quickly thereafter where we get to see like them in the office and how they're living their lives together now but really i think that spanking is the only one that we see but it just sets off so many other things throughout the rest of the film i mean i thought it was very well done because i mean obviously i've seen it before and you know, I knew it was about spanking before I saw it, but you're still like, whoa, that's taking it to like a whole new level. The look on Maggie Gyllenhaal's face during that part, just to see all those different emotions that she's undergoing at that particular point, that whole like shock. And is this really happening to me? And she eventually is okay with it. And then how quickly it turns for her into more of a turn on I thought she just played that so well. She had to do a lot in that one scene, and she it was fascinating. I mean, I think they had to build it up. Otherwise, I think it wouldn't have been as believable that she would need, both need and want it. And I think it also, you see that he's he's been at first kind of like, well, he's been trying to resist it, and then he, you know, gives into it. And so much of his resistance plays into those red pens. And I love the whole story of the red pens throughout this film, you know, where we have when she's coming into the office the first time, he's taking all these red pens and throwing them into the garbage. And then the pens start reappearing. And especially after he sees Lee and Peter together at the laundromat, you know, he has a red pen that he puts on the seat next to him in his car. And it's just like he's kind of making his decision there as far as like this is going to happen. But there is so much more that happens between that and then when the spanking finally starts and him outlining all those words with those red pens again and then again when he rejects himself and throws those red pens away again it's just like oh i'm so frustrated when it's just like just admit what you are to yourself and be okay with it but so many people aren't able to do that and lee isn't necessarily even able to do that at times but she finally you know it feels like when he finally spanks her and when they start to engage in this this play at work, it's just like, okay, yeah, now things seem so right for her, but he just can't do it, you know? And, and that's the great tension of this film is just people trying to figure themselves out. I mean, because Lee doesn't know who she is when she comes out of the psych hospital, and it's so great that she's she really is such a dynamic character of her finding herself through this film. It seems like... His only outlet for this is at work. I mean, it's not with that woman he lived with. How does that play into it? You know, is it because he's officially the boss there or is it because it would be too close if he brought it home? Too much reality because he's so trying to avoid it. And we don't really ever find out like why he's so trying to separate himself from this thing that clearly is part of him. 
there's a few glimpses of him at home. And one of those is when Lee really needs him Mm. and he's kind of shut her out, but she shows up at his house and she basically really wants to embrace him and be like, you know, spank me, let's play, let's do some stuff. And he, I don't know if he's clueless or not, or I don't know if it's kind of breaking the rules that she's there, but he pretty much just, you know, what are you doing here? You know, not, aggressively or anything but it's just like you know this doesn't happen here but it's great that whenever we see him at home or most of the time i think when we see him at home he's on that treadmill we are associating exercise for him as being this kind of denial of what he wants and it seems like when he goes home he just denies what he wants for hours and hours i felt like he wasn't just rejecting or wanting to you know engage in banking or whatever i mean he was that was she really needed someone and she didn't have, I mean, we don't see anyone else really that could have, you know, even platonically, like she would have felt comfortable talking to. So that was a pretty, I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of harsh. Like, I mean, granted, he might not, he doesn't necessarily know what just happened, but still, like, I don't think that she would seek him out unless she really needed to talk to him or do whatever they were going to do. But yeah, but he really like couldn't. Yeah, he was so flustered by her breaking that like office worker boundary. Well, do you think he he's even capable of like expressing that kind of emotion? At least at that point in mm-hmm. that story, in the story, do you think that he would be the kind of person that would like maybe give her a hug or anything? I mean, I don't think. So. I mean, it, it, I mean, I feel like this goes back to their whole really nonverbal. I mean, not entirely nonverbal. They do speak in this, you know, him giving her orders or, you know, berating her for her mistakes, but they don't really talk about anything substantive beyond, you know, that he observes her and she observes him, but, you know, they don't ever have a conversation about what they're doing. And I think, I think that was a very interesting choice. And again, in like explicit contrast to Fifty Shades, where it's like all on the table in minute detail. <laughs> the one time where they almost have the conversation, it's like towards the initial end of their relationship. It's funny, the more I talk about this movie, the more I'm seeing similarities to Fifty Shades. So it's going to be a, a great conversation after the break coming up here. But when he finally kind of has to reject her for himself it feels like and he really is rejecting everything around him and and it ends up firing her and and uh paying her severance and everything they have a repeat of that first conversation yeah and it's getting kind of intense at one point because rather than hiring her he begins to say no you know this is not the job for you and she throws a timeout, like literally like timeout. I want to talk about this. This isn't right. And he just, no, no timeouts. You know, this is it. And just kicks her out. And, you know, we have this in every romantic comedy in the entire world. Like the moment where the two characters, maybe they have a disagreement or maybe there's a misunderstanding, you know, oh, I saw you with my best friend and it looked like you two were canoodling, but you really weren't, but we're going to be broken up for 15, 20 minutes in here until we reconcile. But in this, it really tears the heart out of you because you're just like, no, they were perfect together. They're two broken people that really fit well together and make a whole. I mean, I think it was also interesting because he's both 
you know, cutting off his nose to spite his face. And I felt like she would probably be more equipped to find someone. I mean, we, we later find out like, not really like she, she can't really find what she's looking for with someone else. But, um, she, she seems, I, I think when she asked for the timeout and then a, and a couple other times, you know, I think her strength as a character, as a person really came through. And I, I appreciated that because I think there is still this idea out there that if you're submissive, especially if you're a woman that you don't have any other kind of strength, like you're, you're submissive throughout your, your life and you're, you, you can't have that kind of autonomy. And she, she's, learned a lot like up to that point you know she's figured out why it, like that it's important to her and and that she, it's something she needs and like he is still fighting that yeah she's to the point where she's even listening to an audio tape of how to come out as a dominant yeah. or submissive which i was like oh great yeah i think too many people confuse the word submissive with passive and she starts off passive but yes. eventually is not yeah. she can remain submissive all the live long day you know sexually submissive but she's not passive by the end of the film which i really appreciate and i thought her listening to that was such that was such a contrast to his attitude about it like he can't even accept it to himself and she's ready to you know per- talk to other people about it or possibly talk to other people about it after she gets kind of kicked out of mr gray's life she ends up going back into the arms of Peter. He proposes to her, but the, but there is that montage that you talked about the the great moment where she's trying to find other partners, oh, other play partners. That was great. There was one who tried to grab and pinch my nipples before we even made it to his car. Hi. Another guy kept ordering me to pee on his patio, and when I refused, he said, "I thought you were a masochist." Then there was the one who liked being tied to a gas stove while the burners were on full blast and I had to throw tomatoes at him. Thank you. I mean, I thought it showed that she she was willing to pursue it. Like she she didn't just give up because I do think like you just said at the beginning, she was passive. I think at the beginning of the movie, she would have been someone who just went home and didn't, you know, assumed, okay, well, he doesn't want me. Oh, well, like I'm doomed or something. Well, I want to play devil's advocate for a quick second here and ask you, she's cutting at the beginning of the film and eventually, you know, she almost kind of replaces that with the spanking that Mr. Gray is giving her. I know some people, when they like quit smoking, they start to drink more or vice versa. They quit drinking and they start to smoke more. Do you think she's just replacing one vice with another when it comes to self-inflicted pain versus somebody else providing pain for her? I mean, I think the pain, both those kinds of pains are related, but I don't, I I felt like the spanking gave her something, you know, positive that, I mean, yes, I guess you could say the cutting gave her something positive too, but I felt like the spanking made her feel more powerful, you know, and like, certainly I don't think she was going to be coming out to anyone about the cutting you know, unless she had to. So I, I think, I mean, both were a secret. I mean, they both were things that she wasn't sharing with people, but I felt like she had a different, I don't, I think empowering is a kind of overused word, but I do think that the spanking like buoyed her up. I mean, and, and that she was really, you know, that it was from him. Yes. She, she was also, discovering that this was something she enjoyed, but, you know, that was also coming from him and that it was their, you know, dynamic. 
that I think the the sort of intimacy of it or the intimacy in their worlds, you know, they weren't, nothing about them was like a traditional couple, you know, until towards the end, like they, they weren't a couple, you know, they were still very much, she was a secretary. You know, I, I think it was interesting that he orders her to stop cutting, you know, and she does. Yeah, and she's so liberated by that. I love her voiceover at that point where she's just talking about how great she feels. And then her excitement when she calls him during dinner and talks about what they're having for dinner and then he's controlling what she eats. And of course, you know, everybody's looking at her like she's got a, you know, a second head growing out of her shoulders or something, but it's just like she is so happy by that. So happy that she ends up masturbating later on in the film and talking about, you know, the four peas that she had for dinner. I mean, I think that's the other thing. Like this isn't just a movie about spanking. I mean, it's about submission and about, you know, her choice cuz clearly she pursues it to be in this dominant submissive relationship with him. And like that, I think that is a wonderful example of showing how much it gave her. And like, it's, it almost made like the whole rest of her family's chaos, like tolerable because she has this other thing that supersedes all that. Everybody around me can be as crazy as they want to be. Leslie Ann Warren can look as frazzled as she wants to, but I'm here in this bubble. I'm doing what Mr. Gray the person I I love, even though she, you know, it takes her a while to kind of admit to herself, or really for him, I don't think that he realizes what kind of love is t- until way later on in the film. But yeah, just like I'm doing this thing for this person that I love, so everybody else can just fuck off. I mean, I, and I think that does take a, a kind of strength. I mean, even in that scene, you know, I I think that I, I think that even if you were you would want to do what she's doing. Like you're like, okay, I've been ordered to do this and that turns me on. I mean, to actually go through with it and have everyone staring at you and knowing that people, your family is wondering like what is wrong with you. Like, I think that does take a kind of strength. I have to also admire this film for being one of the few films that I can think of where we see female masturbation in mainstream Hollywood films. I don't see that. And well, not only female masturbation, but we have male masturbation as well. And it's great that people can express themselves like that in this film. And it's just like, okay, yeah, it's really, I just don't see people pleasuring themselves in film very often, especially when it comes to like a a quote unquote romance film, you know, it all has to be about coupling and in this, it's very much about finding what you need for yourself. And I love that her whole first masturbation scene is vacillating between images of Mr. Gray and images of Peter. And just that she, you know, is trying to do the Peter thing and really, try, you know, like thinking about them having sex on these uh, washer dryers and stuff, but just not doing it. She's much more about like being in that other world with Mr. Gray, those red curtains and, you know, the, the beautiful flowers and just the, you know, and I love that the Angelo Badalamenti score coming in here and everything. It was just really, really nice. And her just like, you know, yeah, again, just talking about the four P's and all this stuff. And that's what sends her over the edge. I mean, I think there's a contrast several times in the film with the way she's had to follow certain orders, whether at the the hospital or, you know, her family, 
versus this where she really is choosing to follow these orders. Like she's very actively making that decision to, to be part of that. She, she does have a choice. And, and I think you see her, especially, I mean, you later see her really pursue it. Like, like, you know, that she's more comfortable with it than he is. But I, you know, I think that she's been living under all these rules and restrictions and this is, Yes, these are also rules and restrictions, but they're a totally different type. Yeah, he really doesn't know how to handle it. When she finally has that, what I can only refer to as the graduate moment here, where she you know, takes off the ring, she's still wearing the dress, and runs out of Peter's house, and realizes that she has to be with Mr. Gray. She can't handle being with Peter, and runs to his office. He can't handle it. You know, and he just tells her to sit down at his desk, feet on the floor, hands on the desk, and she doesn't move. And he takes, what, a few days before he can finally kind of come to grips with himself. You see him at home, and it just, he's not a happy person. I think, again, he's doing some jogging and everything. <laughs> so, and that's that whole montage of her at his office and now everybody's coming in and trying to talk her out of, you know, like it's time for you to leave and come on and what's the matter with you. But there are some people amongst that montage that are like, I really admire you for this. And, you know, I could never do what you're doing. You know, we see the old secretary, we see one of her sister's friends. And I found this to be very interesting. Her sister, one of her sister's friends has all these books and it's basically, she's very uh, uh, feminist. And it's just like, you know, you're humiliated yourself. I need you to read these books. These are very important kind of thing. Because she's huge in the screenplay, but she's nowhere to be found in the movie other than like the one scene mm. where they're talking about, you know, sexual harassment. And there's some other characters from the screenplay that um, there's like a, a counselor who is been trying to introduce Lee to the world of BDSM, and he's there like, you know, oh, well, you know, in the, the 14th century, the Catholics would flagellate themselves, and he's like giving her the whole history <laughs> of pain and everything, and all these people are, are there in the montage. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Or some of them are there in the montage, like Patrick Bashal comes back and it's like, where have you been this entire movie, buddy? And apparently he was supposed to be in there much more, mm. but he ended up, uh, he was working with uh, David Fincher on the um, Panic Room, and mm. so he ended up not being in Secretary so much. But yeah, I was just like, oh, okay, here are all these characters in this montage that we don't really get a whole lot of otherwise, especially that one friend who ends, ended up like being more 
Lee's friend, then her sister's friend, and she... I know this is kind of crazy because there's like this whole subplot going on with her where she collects strips from people waxing themselves and she's making art wow. projects with all these, you know, uh, hairs from all these women. And she, she doesn't wax herself though, because she finds that to be really, you know, like kind of playing into the patriarchy and other people's interpretations of beauty and everything. But Lee is just like, Ooh, wow. So if I use this wax, it really hurts to pull the hair out. And so she's like really interested in this stuff, but yeah, so she's, like got a pretty big part in the the screenplay and she just has that like five seconds or whatever during that montage so but yeah i love that whole thing and then again i keep comparing it in my mind to the graduate because then he comes in and kind of rescues her and they start their life together and it's just like wow it's like finally two people who really need to be together are together. And it's just like, you know, again, going back to other romances and romantic comedies and these kind of things, it's like, I'm sure Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey really deserve to be together, but nowhere near what Mr. Gray <laughs> and Lee deserve. You know, they are just, they're, they're two puzzle pieces that have finally clicked by the end of this film. You know, you said earlier, like that he is this fascinating character and, I was just thinking, like, he, he, I don't know exactly how old he's supposed to be or she's supposed to be, but I imagine he's older than her. So I feel like, you know, he's struggled with this for longer. And she, she's just discovered this and she's very sure that this is what she, you know, wants. I mean, she's, she's doing everything, you know, she's throwing away this other safer, you know, more conventional life. And she's, she's doing a lot of things to pursue it that I feel like he is too afraid to pursue. And I think that to me, that really struck me that he's dominant in this very specific controlled environment, but he's not really a good advocate for himself. Like he's not a very, you know, aggressive person in terms of pursuing the rest of his life. Like both, both in terms of BDSM or really it seems like in terms of his career, like he seems almost lost. He's probably had, I don't know, 15 more years of guilt and bad feelings that he's got to swim through. So it's no wonder that he doesn't immediately just sweep her up in his arms. You know, when she comes in and says, I love you, he's got so much stuff he's got to work through because he's just so damaged by all the time where, you know, how, how many red markers has he gone through in his life? You know, how many times has he gone to Office Max or Office Depot and picked up more and just felt so bad, maybe even thrown him out in the parking lot? You know, it's just like he's got a, has so much stuff going on that I really feel for this character. I feel for both of them. That says something about just in our culture. I think that there is this idea that if you're even if you're not into BDSM per se. I think there is this idea that if you're a straight man, you take on the more dominant role, both sexually and otherwise, like that you are the leader of your relationship. And like, and I feel like, you know, he, he did have this dominance in him, but he wasn't comfortable with it. Like he, he didn't know how to handle it. And he felt clearly guilty you know, and that he wasn't doing right by her or him, you know, he, he was much more conflicted about it than she was. She really wasn't once she, once she got over really in those seconds of that first spanking, like she took to it and 
maybe she grappled with it a little bit. Like, you know, what, what does this mean? But she, not the way he did. Yeah, it was like the scales just fell from her eyes as soon as that first blow landed. And it's just like, yeah, this is for me. Yeah, she really took to it like a duck to water. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the more she was, the more she learned about herself and pursued it and was okay with it, like, the more striking his discomfort was to me. He could not handle eventually seeing that. I mean, he really seemed to take to it. They have that great montage of, you know, them playing and everything. But yeah, it's just like after a while, I think just the guilt got to him and he couldn't do it anymore. I mean, and I felt I did feel bad for him there because he's not coercing her. You know, he's been patient, might be the word. You know, he he kind of observed her and sort of figured out that, okay, maybe this would work with her. But then like he's very skittish and it, it takes a lot. I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously I had seen it before, so I knew how it was going to end, but I think it could have ended with them not together, you know, and I think she would have been okay and he would have been less okay. Yeah. I think she would have kept looking for partners and maybe found somebody who clicked, but maybe not. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it would have been easy because obviously she had, you know, she struggled with finding someone, but you know, I think that's normal. You know, I, I think at least she didn't give up. Like I felt like he just was so, it took a lot to just for him to even do it in the first place to overcome that. Talking about the screenplay a little bit more, that montage of them having those happy times, you know, uh, him putting the saddle on her and putting the carrot mm-hmm. in her mouth and some of those other scenes of, of her with the um, – it's nice that we start the movie with her being kind of shackled and having that like – I don't know. It's not a spreader bar, but having her, her arms out yeah. like that. I'm not sure what the, the equipment is. You know, so we do the kind of, you know, here's where we are six months earlier. This is how it started. And that's this kind of idyllic time about, you know, an hour into the film or so of them doing that. And uh, reading the original screenplay, that stuff is much more towards the end of the film where they're together full time. You know, everything has already happened. So we don't necessarily get that real period of happiness that we have there, which I think we need, you know, and I think it was a really smart decision to move that up in the storyline and to show them as this kind of happy couple and everything, um, enjoying themselves. And then it's, I think that makes the contrast of him wanting to stop the play even more harsh. Cause it's like, Oh no, you guys just had however many weeks of all of these great could have been days, but I'm imagining weeks, maybe even months of them having all this play together. And then the end of it has to feel even worse because you've had these great times, whereas the original flow of it, it really didn't flow that way. It was kind of like more like the first incident and then not a whole lot of stuff afterwards and her really kind of pining for just even that first incident. So I think it was nicer that they had more things happening between that. So, and we do get that nice, you know, I think they wrapped it up very well as far as them having this relationship now and taking it outside of the office and him having to hire a male secretary (laughs) and everything. So it's just like, okay, you know, things are going to be better. And, you know, her with the the bug on the bed and everything is just like, okay, this things are going to work out well for these two. The bug on the bed reminds me like that there's a scene where she finds this worm and I was like, what is happening here? But that was again, a scene that I felt like she really, 
you know, ballsy, I, I would say, and excuse me, in pursuing this thing that she clearly wants, you know, and not just wants, but I would say needs. Like she does things that I, I think are very telling, you know, that he would never do. Like he, he just seems like he can't even like accept it in his mind. No, that worm scene is fantastic. And him just circling that worm over and over and over again. And because we get that little bit earlier where she is making typos on purpose and not correcting them and basically trying to initiate play and him just completely oblivious and ignoring her and just like, I have to work. And it's just like, oh, man, that's cold. That is really harsh. That definitely was. You said that you read the short story. What did you think of the short story? I have read some of Mary Gateskill's work, but I hadn't read it before. Um, And, you know, it was very different. Like it was like I was almost like, really, they got this movie out of this because that's the very barest bones. and, And you don't I mean, he's he doesn't have a name. He's just the lawyer. And he's you know, I, I don't feel anything for him because I don't know that much about him. I don't know. I, I wasn't as, I'm not saying I didn't like the story, but like, I didn't get as much of a sense of their dynamic and, or her, you know, I, I felt like there was just, it was less about that, the spanking than about, you know, her trying to, you know, carve out this life aside from her family. I mean, I feel like they're almost two different, two very, they're, they're not almost, they are two very different things. I didn't get as much of a sense of her being into it. After he spanks her, I want to say that she ends up just staying at home and never going back to work. Yeah, and, and he, then there's like this weird thing with him running for office and someone finding out, like, there wasn't that playfulness that you see it, like you said, in the very beginning. And then I love when she answers the phone with her mouth. She is exaggerating all the tasks that she's supposed to do and like reveling in it. Um, And none of that was like, I'm not even sure why, you know, how, what the spanking is doing for either of them really. And then it's, and then, yeah, it it was very different. I will tell you that I found it really fascinating just from a, a geographical point of view, because as I'm reading this story, I hadn't read it before, so I, I'm reading it for this episode, and I'm just like, oh, they mentioned uh, this place called Wonderland. That's interesting. I wonder how many Wonderland malls there are out there in the world. And then uh, they talk about like Amy Joy Donuts, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember Amy Joy Donuts. They used to have those here. And then she starts talking about Eight Mile Road, and I was like, oh, okay, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of Eight Mile Roads out there. And then next thing I know, she's talking about Telegraph, and I'm just like – wait a second, this is set here. Like this, I travel down Telegraph every day. I pass by Eight Mile Road every day. <laughs> Wonderland Mall, the the former Wonderland Mall is two miles from my house. And wow. at one point when they're talking about he's running for the mayor of Westland, I live in Westland. <laughs> and her dad says like, oh, Westland, what a, you know, what a crappy town. They only have a, what a, a movie theater with a fake volcano out front. And I'm like, okay, that I don't know. So then I had to go looking for like movie theater, volcano, Detroit, uh, out in Google. And I found, oh yeah, the Maikai Theater which eventually became the George Burns Theater, which is now condos and is, again, two miles from my house. 
that's the theater that used to have a volcano out in front of it. I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm like looking at old pictures. It's like, you know, playing at the Maikai this week, Son of Flubber. And I'm just like, okay, this is really weird. So then I looked up Mary Gateskill and found that she went to the University of Michigan. So I'm like, okay, I don't know if she lived here in Michigan at one point because she was born in Kentucky. And I don't know what she did between birth and college but i was just like she definitely knows the area so it's just really strange for me to be reading this story and start seeing all these landmarks of stuff and it was just like oh all right <laughs> mary was uh probably traipsing around here in westland uh a couple decades and ago. i i don't know the the backstory on how i mean i know you read the screenplay but i don't really know how it who was the one who said, who read this and was like, okay, this would make a good movie, you know? Cause I, I didn't, I mean, I, I thought the story had a lot of details that were interesting, um, but just not, I didn't see the bones of what became that movie. So while I was putting this episode together, one of the first things I'll do is think of a movie I want to talk about, and then I'll try to think of who are the people that I can talk to about it. So I reached out to the director, Stephen Shaneberg. I reached out to the writer, Aaron Cressida Wilson, and both of them immediately were like, yeah, sure, sounds great. Mm. And I'm like, oh, Awesome. So I had an interview set up with Mr. Shaneberg, and then it ended up like I had to go to a meeting because it was during the the day at work, and I don't like to take phone calls when I'm at work. So I'm like, okay, let's set this up again. And it's like, well, he's editing his new film. Well, he's doing this. Well, he's doing that. And then finally, it was like on a Monday, I got an email back from his representative who was just like, yeah, he's not interested. And then in the meantime, I'm pursuing Miss Wilson, and it's like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Oh, hey, do you want to talk about this? Hey, do you want to talk about that? And then it was actually that Tuesday I got an email from her that said, oh, I really don't want to do this anymore. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was, it was a it's okay. It was a dark mm-hmm. week for me, but I'm just like, man, that that really kind of sucks. So, and then the other person I wanted to talk to, I mean, obviously I would have loved to have talked to Spader and Gyllenhaal, McHattie and, and, you know, Leslie Ann Warren, Jeremy Davies. I've loved Jeremy Davies since I saw him in Spanking the Monkey, but I was like, oh, let me, let me see Patrick Bashaw. I, I really like him, even though he's in the m- movie for five minutes, but he was in one of my favorite Columbo episodes. So emailed his person and his person was like, you know, oh, is there any compensation for the interview? Mm. And I was just like, oh, fuck. So I wrote back and I said, no, we don't charge anything to interview people. And apparently that didn't go over too well. (laughs) (laughs) Needless to say, that didn't happen either. So, and I even sent along interview questions and I was like, well, I want to talk about his whole career and this is just kind of part of it because he has led a fascinating career. And yeah, that just didn't happen. So... Instead, we are going to take a break here and play a pair of interviews. The first is going to be with Judy Cummings, the author of Self-Injury, The Ultimate Teen Guide, who will shed some light on cutting. And we'll also hear from Claire Cavanaugh of Babeland, who will talk to us about some use of sex toys. Should be a great double feature. You'll hear both of those after these brief messages. So how is my pot roast? Almost as good as Aunt Rosie's. Well, it should be. It's her recipe. Let's call her. But it's long distance. Wouldn't that be expensive? Not if you dial 1010321 first. Saves a ton. How's it work? Just dial 1010321, then one, then Aunt Rosie's number. Is it okay if we all say hello? Sure. Talk away. 1010321 is a real bargain. All my calls over 20 minutes are half price. Let's pass that phone around. 
Rosie, does this smell familiar? Who doesn't want to save 50%? Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B O O T H at adamandeve.com. Hey, hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room Cast. I am Albert Wiltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia... We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics. We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people, we have to. We have a huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA, we've got stuff on like adaptations, we've got stuff on movies that have been... Turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so... <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with, uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album, Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah. Thank you all. Hope you listen to us. And good night. All right. Hi, this is Hugh, the host and editor of the Way of the Buffalo podcast. Twice a month, we present the best short fiction of all genres, thought-provoking interviews, and other diverse entertainments. You can find us online at wayofthebuffalopodcast.blogspot.com or search for us on iTunes. Some people say that short fiction is going the way of the buffalo. Come join us, won't you?
my name is Judy Dodge Cummings, and I'm a full-time writer right now. I was a high school social studies teacher until last summer, and I resigned, and now I write for children and teenagers. So how did you- It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. You decide to write Self-Injury, The Ultimate Teen Guide. Um, actually, a woman who went to my graduate school is an agent, and she just had a connection with the publisher and said, anybody interested in some titles? And I was, and so I just chose that one. So it wasn't really anything I'd had a prior interest in. I knew I had some students with this and their backgrounds, and so I, of the titles that were offered, I thought, well, that sounds kind of interesting, and so I just dug in, and that's how I came across it. I learned a lot. It was uh, not fun research. I, I tend to write books on, on history, like right now I'm writing one on the Underground Railroad, which also has its very dark side, but but it's, it's different than this. Cutting was, you know, much more psychological. I do have, my first bachelor's degree was in psychology, you know, so I studied psychology and whatnot. You know, a lot of personal stories that are just really painful to, to read and listen to. Tell me more about self-injury. Of course, I, I imagine the biggest mystery to most people is why. Why do people hurt themselves? I don't consider myself an expert, but I did do a lot of research on this. So there's different types of self-injury, um, and the kind that we usually think of when we say cutter, you know, cutting, because um, that's what's most commonly associated with it, even though there are multiple methods that people use, that's really an impulsive kind of behavior that is learned and habitual. Um, so it becomes a habit that really occurs because it's an short-term anyway, short-term effective way of coping with stress and unwanted emotion. Other kinds of self-injury that are less common, so you've got the major self-injury, those are people who are psychotic and they might cut off an arm or cut off a penis, you know, things that are really dramatic because they lose touch with reality. You've got the stereotypic self-injurers who are severely autistic or severely cognitively impaired who bang their head against a wall repeatedly. You know, that's a, those are different kind of disorders. Some people have, like I had a student last year who um, had like compulsive self-injury that's really more OCD, so he would wash his hands so often he looked like a lobster from his fingers to his elbows, but he couldn't stop. Those are different types. So the more common one um, is the impulsive self-injury, and it's really people who are trying to deal with either a lack of emotion or too much emotion. And by inflicting physical pain, it helps alleviate that emotional pain for a short period of time, which sounds kind of contradictory, but that's how it works. It seemed as though there were, I don't know what the, what the ratio would be. It seemed to me from my research that more commonly you have people with very intense emotions. So severe anxiety, deep depression, and at some point in time, they self-injure 
It might be accidentally the first time. It might be something they see at a movie or a friend tells them about it and they try it. And for, for a brief period of time after that physical pain is inflicted, there's a moment of release and relief. And they can kind of cope. That intense emotion is dialed back. And so then that becomes a reinforcing pattern of behavior. And they do it again, and they do it again, and they do it again. Then the other type is someone who doesn't feel enough. And what I found in my research was that these are people who've experienced severe stress, like incest survivors, um, rape survivors. During that time of trauma, they associated and that was their coping mechanism, just kind of, you know, disappearing inside themselves. But then when they get out in their regular life and move on, they, they will disassociate in response to other stressors, like an, an overlong meeting at work or an argument with their spouse. And so they lose touch with their surroundings, with their, even their, their sense of self. And so cutting or burning or punching their hand into the wall grounds them back. It gives them feeling again. Instead of wanting to escape the feeling like the other group, it gives them that emotion, that feeling, that physical pain, which brings them back to reality. So for both of these groups, it's a, a maladjusted but temporarily effective means of avoiding the emotional pain. Now, do endorphins kind of play into this at all? Well, that's the real sort of ongoing controversy, and I think a subject of more research, because the, the debate is, is this addictive behavior? It certainly mirrors that pattern from what I could find. You develop a tolerance to it, so you might have to injure yourself more deeply or more often to get that same kind of release. But what causes that that uh, buildup of you know resistance? Um, there is some data and some scholars who say that, who suspect and believe, but I don't think there's causal evidence yet that um, people who become really you know, addicted to this or, you know, do it very frequently or routinely, have a more um, intense reaction to the release of opiates because everybody has that happen when they experience pain. You get this flood of opiates for a short period of time. And so perhaps that release of opiates has an addictive quality to it because those are pretty powerful, you know, as addictive as heroin from what I've heard. And so that then becomes something that draws them back to that behavior again. But that's, other people disagree with it and say it's really more habitual and learned. It's probably a combination of both is what I'm guessing. I don't know. I mean, it's how you clean out how much of it's just learned behavior. And so you associate all that release with that, you know, you're in your little room or wherever it is that you do your routine, you know, some people that pull their blinds shut, they go into their room, it's a certain time of day, they have a certain type of tool that they use, and all of that has with it the intoxicating sense of, I'm going to get away from whatever it is that's making me feel so bad emotionally, and then you have that. But I did see, you know, I mean, I read a couple of quotes where people talked about it being, you know, like, orgasmic in terms of it's the kind of relief they had after they, as soon as they had self-injured. You know, so there's definitely a physical response. Is this more of a male or female behavior? It was traditionally for a very long time thought of as just a rich white girl disease or condition disorder because it is now um, it's in the latest DSM, you know, manual on mental disorders. It's, I think it was just two years ago it was finally classified as a, as a mental disorder, which makes it easier for people to get treatment. But now there's, again, conflicting research. So one study I read said it's about half and half. 
Another study I read said it was about um, four times as many women will self-injure than men. Um, other studies that showed twice as much. So it sort of depends on what population you're looking at, but definitely males do this as well. Males tend to, what I found anyway, was that they're going to use a different method. So they're going to punch their hand into a wall or maybe um, burn themselves with a lighter, whereas the girl is going to cut her arms or her inner thighs or something like that. Perhaps it's a little easier for the male to hide that. So, you know, I got into a fight, I lost my temper. You know, that aggressive behavior is maybe more sort of cloaked in some way. But what I found is that among the males and females who identify as self-injurers, they're self-injuring at the same frequency. Probably the rates in general are higher among females, but the behavior when it's in place is done at the same rate. And it's also um, increasingly being found as something that, you know, African-American young women are engaging in, relatively high rates among people with transgender, sexual identity issues, alternative culture, kinds of, you know, type of folks, you know, really people who are going through um, stressful identity issues. DC self-injury is maybe some sort of way you can express control over a situation, even if that situation is just your own body? That's what came through so many times in things that I read and statements that people made. I can't control my emotional response or I can't control other people's emotional response, but I can control what I do to my body. I can choose the time or place when I'm going to inflict that damage and get that physiological response from it. Do you see any ties between something like self-injury and eating disorders? I do, and um, I talk about this a little bit in the introduction because um, when I was in college, I had I had uh, bulimia myself, and I didn't put any, anything together when I agreed to do this title, but the more I researched about it, and I struggled with this for about nine years, the more commonalities I saw between the, the intense need, the sort of cycle that developed, you know, a lot of the responses I found very similar, and that there's quite a fair amount of research that shows really bulimia, anorexia are different forms of self-harm. You know, in quite a few studies, people who are identified as having an eating disorder also identify as or have had an experience or more than one experience with self-injury. So it's kind of, you know, it's the same as true for people who have you know, drug addiction and stuff. I mean, it's really an addictive, maladjusted form of coping with stress, whether it's abusing alcohol or abusing drugs, starving yourself or cutting yourself. I mean, it's just kind of pick your tool in a way or pick your method of trying to escape your pain. Now, your book is called The Ultimate Teen Guide. Do you see people who engage in this behavior as a teen eventually just kind of growing out of it? Some do. Um, I did read a number of uh, accounts of people, women, I think they were all women. I don't know that that's, you know, indicative of anything. It's just the ones I read in their 40s, in their 50s, who still engage in this kind of behavior. So I think it does happen that they grow out of it, but it's not necessarily something that they can just expect to grow out of. For some people, gradually the need to do it just diminished. You know, maybe that has something to do with the, the maturation of our frontal lobe of our brain or something. I'm not sure, but uh, they just had less need to do that. For others, what you saw happening was the effectiveness of it diminished. So you're just not getting the relief that you wanted. And so you kind of reach a, a fork in the road and you're either going to quit that behavior because it's not working anymore 
and you're just tired of it. You're tired of hiding. You're tired of, you know, scars, all of it. Or you, and so then you quit. Or you up the ante and you start injuring yourself more severely, and then somebody notices and you get an intervention. Or you injure yourself so severely that, you know, it's treated as a suicide attempt or you do commit suicide. You know, so it seemed as though there were just really a multitude of patterns. I can't say that I found anywhere in any of the research by, you know, the psychological experts that you'll just grow out of this, you know, it will pass. That wasn't the response. It's This is serious. You have to figure out how to deal with your emotional issues so you can stop this kind of behavior because it's got um, long-term consequences and it's potentially very dangerous. I mean, for me, when I was researching this, and then I'm, you know, spending more than two decades in the classroom, and I'm thinking about all these kids that I thought were attention-seeking, whiny teenagers, kvetching about this or that, and now understanding this more, I realize this isn't just, this is a, a lonely, desperate cry for help in a lot of ways, and I didn't understand these young people. You know, and these were just things I saw or overheard. It wasn't like anybody came to me and said, I'm cutting myself, I need help, I wouldn't turn my back on anyone like that, but... So it definitely was a a harder book because I've got my own ways in which I don't think I paid close enough attention to kids I was dealing with. Well, if you are a parent or are a teacher, what kind of things would you or should you look for? You look for um, a lot of secrecy. You look for unexplained injury. You look for people who are not letting parts of their body show, like it might be really hot out, but you're still wearing the long sleeve shirt that you you pull down over your wrists, that type of thing. I would say people's reaction to stressful situations if he or she is going to run off and, um, you know, disappear for a certain period of time, which, of course, is really hard to figure out. I mean, my kids are all three adults now, but I can certainly remember when they were 15, 16 years old, you have a lot of running off into your room with the door slamming and not wanting to talk to their parents for three hours. So it's really looking at blood somewhere where it shouldn't be, a rag stash somewhere, burns on their body, broken bones that aren't explained. If you're a parent or someone who loves someone who's doing this, not to show the revulsion that probably most of us feel. The very thought of somebody taking a razor blade and cutting it across their arm is just like, oh my God. But that's something to control that and not, it's not an attempt to commit suicide. I think that's important. I've read, this is like, don't have the quote in front of me, but I've read versions of this from multiple people. I'm, I'm hurting myself so I don't kill myself. It's like an attempt to stay alive, because if they didn't have this outlet, they might commit suicide. Now, of course, that's not effective in the long run. You've got to get help. You've got to figure out how to get beyond it. But most parents are going to absolutely freak out. You know, my kid cut her wrist. She's trying to kill herself. They're not trying to kill themselves. They're trying to live. Well, Judy, thank you so much for your time today. This has been perfect. All right. You're very welcome. If I can help you in any other way, just give me a holler. herself to rid herself of sin and the kick is so divine when she sees bones beneath her skin and she says hey baby can you bleed like me come on baby can you bleed like me chris is all dressed up and acting cool painted like a brand new christmas toy Trying to figure out if he's a girl or he's a boy And he says, hey baby, can you bleed like me?
my name is Claire Cavanaugh, and I'm a co-founder and co-owner of Babeland. Tell me about Babeland. How long have you guys been around? We've been around for about 23 years now. So we're we're a sex-positive, woman-owned, mostly woman-run sex toy retailer. We have four stores, and the website is babeland.com. So we have one store in Seattle and three stores in New York. Basically, we just provide a very, very nice atmosphere to buy sex toys in with staff that's really knowledgeable and encouraging. So when did you get the idea to found the store? 24 years ago, about, um, my business partner and I, Rachel, were you know then best friends and trying to figure out what we wanted to do with our lives. And we're both lesbians and both you know talked about sex a lot and we're pretty political, sort of politicized by going to college and talking about feminism and trying to place sexuality in this feminist context that was kind of up in the 80s when we were in college. Then we just decided to open sex stores. Kind of crazy. It was just like a like a bolt from the blue, like Eureka, you know. And once we had the idea, there was no stopping us. And so we did it. And people sort of came around. Like nobody really understood what we were talking about when we were promoting it to begin with. And now, you know, 23 years later, sex toys are very much in the mainstream and much more sort of accepted than they were back then. What kind of taboos or whatever were going on around sex toys at the time? Well, at the time, they were either marital aids, which is what my family called them. And I said, I'm opening a sex store. My brother said, you mean marital aids? And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm going to sell sex toys. And he's like, what are you talking about? So really, it was like, if you had a problem in your relationship, you would get a vibrator. And it was very, very shameful. And that was supposed to heal your marriage. Or you're very kinky and you would go to these sex stores that are kind of sleazy and dark and people are basically ashamed to be in there to buy what it is that you want. And there's lots and lots of porn, mostly, in those sex stores. So hang-ups galore. There was nothing but hang-ups, it seemed like. Nobody was talking about sex as like a, a good, healthy part of life that we knew of. There was no internet, you know, no one could go just Google G-spot and find you know, six, 60 million hits like you can now. That's kind of what happened. We just started talking to folks about sex in a kind of an open, honest, encouraging way. And, you know, that just floods and floods of people came in with their questions and their desires. And then they just, you know, would buy sex toys while they're, they're talking with us. The G-spot, isn't that kind of like Sasquatch or some of this kind of like, you know... <laughs> The Yeti. It is definitely not Sasquatch or the Yeti or the Unicorn. It is a place on the front wall of the vagina that swells when it's aroused and can lead to ejaculation when you stimulate it. And it's not recognized by the American Medical Association. Or the gynecologists are not obstetricians either, I think. But that's why people think it's an, a unicorn, it's, but it's not. Like anyone with a vulva and a little sort of common sense and a little time can find their G-spot. So how was the store accepted in 93 when you opened? It was, well, we opened in Seattle and that turned out to be a very lucky thing for us because Seattle was very interesting. Actually, in 1993, there was the sort of underground rock scene that had not 
really, I mean, it was starting to become a national fixture, you know, like the very, it's kind of like the final moment of rock and roll, the grunge movement. And like Starbucks was there. And so there was a lot of innovation and just a lot of space to kind of try stuff. I would say there was like, a, it was like a tolerant kind of remote place that was like closer to like Asia than the U S in some ways, you know, it's on the Pacific rim, which is really far out there. I mean, now, now everyone and everything is much closer together with like global communications and all that. But it was just like a little fishing village where you could do anything you wanted to do. So there was no backlash. I mean, we, nobody really cared if you started a sex shop. It was hard to get a landlord because that's like really like so-called getting into bed with, with the business. But we did find a nice landlord who was just sort of lazy there. And so people did not have problems with it. It wasn't like we got protests or anything, but basically like welcoming kind of vibes from people. And people would come in and not know where they were. They'd look around and be like, is this a coffee shop? Like, no, this is a dildo store. <laughs> um, you know, or like a hair salon. Like they did not, it was really disorienting because there was no such thing as a very pleasant boutique sex store in anyone's experience around there, unless they had been to Good Vibrations in San Francisco. So yeah, it was pretty well accepted. And, and I think, I mean, we have Seattle to thank for that. And then we came to New York and opened a store knowing that we had a great idea and seeing the success in Seattle, you know, New York. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's kind of the same way. Like you're, it's almost anything goes. If you can find a landlord, you can really thrive if you have a good business idea. And so that's how we started growing into a national presence. When it comes to like images in the media, I don't know how, when you guys first opened, how sex toys or marital hates were Mm -hmm. necessarily portrayed in mainstream media. Was it easy to kind of break past the barriers and actually get people to be a little bit more accepting of the idea of coming to your store and being able to participate in this? Uh, Well, Media-wise, I can't even really think of many examples, maybe even any examples of sex toys. And I'm sure there are some, but it would be in like super independent kind of film. And that was, there's um, the Slums of Beverly Hills. Natasha, you know, had a vibrator and was doing like a little dance with it. I remember thinking that I just loved that moment because it was, clearly a vibrator. She was a young woman, you know, getting into her sexuality. And that was like the first moment where I felt like 
I'm doing something that people don't know about yet, but will pretty soon. And then came Sex in the City. So that pretty much put sex toys like in the middle of a really influential culture, you know, HBO. That was a huge show, as you probably know. They talked about vibrators a couple of times, and especially the rabbit vibrator. So that's still, it is still selling. That's, I don't know how many years ago, it's got to be like 15 years ago that that happened. And it's still a bestseller. It was just like vaulted to the top by that kind of implicit recommendation. They were so powerful. So that was a, a huge watershed moment. And I would say like Fifty Shades of Grey kind of made that, made it to that level too, as like a sort of cultural moment for sex toys and sexuality, speaking of sexuality and popular culture. So yeah, it was, it was Sex in the City that really put us on the map, not us, Bayland, but us, like the people who know that sex toys really improved your sex life. Sex in the City helped push the sales of The Rabbit. What would something like a Fifty Shades help push the sales of? It helps push the sales of every product mentioned in the book. It was almost like a, a prescription. <laughs> Honestly, it was like a prescription. Like they'd read the book and the people who were interested, and there were millions and millions and millions of people, mainly women, read that book and responded to it. And they would come in and just point to the words practically in the text to the point where we just made a kit and sold it like crazy, you know, because we knew what they wanted. They knew what they wanted. It was like, you know, we don't have to go through the motions of giving you a a tour of the store (laughs) because all you want is like Benoit balls and a blindfold and a slapper, you know, (laughs) something like that. So, yeah, that's how it went. It was, it was huge. It was really, really huge. Now, when you're there selling a vibrator, obviously you don't really have to worry about how people are going to use it when they get home. There's a few ways you can use it, but you really don't have to worry. Was there any concern as far as selling more like BDSM type toys to folks who may not necessarily know like the safety precautions that go along with those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. There are, you know, vibrators are pretty obvious. I mean, there's some sort of knowledge that can help you use them better. But when we sell SM stuff, we have, you know, pretty strict guidelines basically for selling the toys. And we used to have, and still do have some um, SM workshops. We had a whole bunch when Fifty Shades, the book, first came out and was on that roll. So there's a lot to know, basically. There is a lot to know about how to use the toys and how to play safely with each other, with another person. We won't sell anything really without explaining how to use it in a safe way. We have signs all over the store, like where you can strike a person. The kidneys are like the no-go zone. There's like a stop sign there. And it's really, it makes it very clear where you can you know, strike the person, for instance, and where you can bind the person without stopping their circulation. So there's a little more to know about the SM toys than the rest. And anal sex is kind of the same way. Like the, there are some things you can do that are dangerous. And if you know a couple things, then you can have a lot more fun and be much, much safer and avoid trauma. <laughs> you know? I find that really admirable that you guys would go to that much trouble that you actually you know, care so much about the people that you're selling this stuff to that it's like you want them to use it in the proper way. I think that's great. Yeah. Well, they are our people. The SM community, the kinksters, are, they have been our 
it's not even just our best customers. We're like of them and they are of us. They have had to talk about sex because of their sexual orientation and what they like. They have had to talk about sex since as they become sexual. They have to talk about it because, and really everybody should, you know, everyone should be talking about what they want and, you know, asking their partner what they want. But when you have like an unusual kind of orientation like that, and you're in a community that we find your community that's into that too. There's just a lot more communication and knowledge and kindness and understanding. We love the kinky people. They're not separate from us. We are the kinky people, you know, in some ways, like it doesn't seem like that from the outside, but we are all a family, really. We're responsible like that. And they are a very responsible community too. And they're really good at like, multiple relationships like polyamory and stuff like that, again, because their communication skills are so uh, well, so, you know, defined. What kind of feedback did you get from people who were maybe trying this out for the first time and came back for, for more stuff? What was that experience like seeing these people who have never really done this before kind of getting more involved in the lifestyle? I don't really know. I mean, I wasn't there to get the second round of people that really got into it. And I would say that it was more of a kind of a spike in interest and not like a not like a new plateau of people who are into kinky sex. It was more of it was a little bit of a trend, actually. That's kind of what it was. I'm sure a lot of people really got a lot of their you know, got their eyes open and their sort of sexuality sparked by um fifty shades, but for the most part it really was a trend. So it's kinda of died out now? Yeah, it's not it's you know, like really kinky people. I mean, you can kind of dabble in it, but it's pretty much an orientation for a lot of people. But sex itself is kind of power exchange and involves a lot of trust too. So there's a little bit of that in all of us and all of our relationships. But it's not like the 30 million women who read Fifty Shades and came and got the blindfold have come back for anything else. <laughs> you know, like that's the truth. When it comes to something like a Fifty Shades... I can see that really kind of opening up people maybe to the idea of role play, whether it be the roles of dominant and submission or just role play in general. Where do you kind of see that fitting in and how does Bayplan help people out when it comes to that as well? You know, I always think of sex as like the adult area of play. Like I, I now have two children and everybody knows that children play. It's like their job basically is to play and pretend and go into other worlds together and find out, you know, just about themselves, basically. Like, that's their whole world. And I feel like as we grow and we get into our sexuality, that's what adults, that's the area in which adults can kind of let go of reality again and play. So role play is like a really good example of that because it really is pretend. You know, like when you play like cops and robbers, swing the little or, or school, you know, and somebody's a teacher and they're like, in control, you know, and someone's a student and they're submissive pretty much, you know, that some role play in, in a sexual um, context is it's, you know, it's common, it's fun. It's a, it's a way to sort of leave your daily world behind and just, you know, go into another place. Yeah, that doesn't really involve sex. Toward, it's not like we haven't a sort of a department of fantasy or something like that. It's really, really common thing that people do. When they're having sex. It's sort of like making the power just explicit, you know, because you are, like I said, you're, you're in a trusting, hopefully, like if you're in a healthy relationship, you're in a trusting kind of space, you're trusting your 
this person to see you naked and touch your body and, and to let go in front of them, you know, into orgasm if that's what you get to do. Some people don't, but it's more place common and fun and human, totally human. Tell us about uh, some of the workshops that you guys have. What are some of the more popular ones that you have these days? Well, SM is kind of back. You know, we, we've gone from having a lot of full-length workshops about certain topics. In the beginning, we had we had a workshop pretty much every week, you know, 20 years ago, because people were asking a lot of the same questions, and we were answering them, you know, all day. And so we decided to have these forums, you know, and like sort of like consciousness raising groups where people would come in and we could tell answer all their questions that, and listen to their concerns and they would listen to each other. And that is before the internet. Where, but, you know, even though there is now a worldwide web where you can find out a lot of good information, you can also find out a lot of not very good information and a lot of information that just isn't all the way there with like encouraging who you are as a person. You know, I mean, there's just, you know, you, you can find anything on the internet. And so coming to Bayland for a workshop is really still a unique experience that is kind of deeper, you know, talking about sex in front of people, seeing people talk about sex, hearing them talk about it in the room with you is really empowering and liberating. And that said, the blowjob workshop is the biggest one that we sell out every single time. <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> You know, people still want to know about anal sex and the G-spot and SM and how to, you know, have better sex and how their bodies work and stuff. But the blowjob thing, endlessly interesting to people. I would not have, um, oh God, here comes a pun. I would not have pegged it. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't have pegged it. Uh Uh, Yeah, well, women, you know, if you think about it, women just want to be better at it. Like, I wish cunnilingus were as big as blowjobs. And it isn't, and we give the people what they want. I wish cunnilingus were as big as well. You talked about the rabbit being very popular. What are some of your other most popular items these days? Well, there is a vibrator called a WeVibe. And if you look on our website, we have a bestseller list up there. And the WeVibe is in the top one or two or three all the time. And it is the first vibrator that you can wear basically while you're having intercourse with someone. So it's it's kind of a little C shape. And so one and both ends of it vibrate. So one vibrator goes in and hits the G spot and the other stays on the outside and rubs on the clitoris. And it's so thin where the two parts come together that you can, you know, be penetrated with, you know, penis, dildo, whatever it is you're using. And so the vibration, you know, goes through the penis too, and everybody's so it's like a simultaneous orgasm is within reach, you know. That's the unicorn <laughs> simultaneous orgasm. <laughs> so that's a big one. And it's really great, fun, fun vibrator. It doesn't work for everybody, but it does work for nearly most people. And so that's a big one. Then there's the magic wand, formerly known as the Hitachi magic wand, but Hitachi got out of the business realizing that people were using their wand for sex and not just muscle tension relaxation. <laughs> it, it's great. There's a rechargeable one now and it's got all kinds of settings and there's no cord to it and it's really strong and it's just like a super reliable appliance. You know, it's just like solid state vibrator. And those are the big ones. There's all kinds of new 
ways that vibrators are coming out and new things that they do. And and as technology, you know, marches forward, vibrators march with it. You know, as phones get slimmer, vibrators get smaller, you know, it's like technology, like the, the sex toy industry is kind of on the same track as it's following technology advancements. Well, yeah, it seems like so much of the time, like when something new is invented, it almost feels like, okay, how can we use this for sex? Yeah, exactly. How can we apply this? <laughs> right. Or like the, you know, VCR, fast forward on the VCR is all about getting to the sexy parts, you know? So where can people find out more about you and be able to order the, the, got the, the Wii thing? The Wii vibe. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty great. Um, but we are online at bigland.com. And we have a store in Seattle, our original, which is terrific. And we have a store in Brooklyn and two in Manhattan. That's where you can find us. Very cool. And are you guys on the social media? We are on the social media, yes. Not so much Facebook because they're kind of anti-sex. It's hard to get our posts up there. But we have a Twitter handle, which is Babeland underscore toys, I believe. Yeah, that's it. And we also have Instagram and Tumblr going on. I'm not sure what to how to get there though. I'm not so into it. I'll be sure to link to your stuff via our website projection-boot.com and folks can go on over there. Be sure to visit Babeland and stock up on some good stuff. Yeah, yes, yes. Come on over. back this week we were talking about the film secretary now i couldn't resist comparing this film with another movie and book with a ds theme featuring a character called mr gray of course i'm talking about el james's 50 shades of gray and the sam tyler johnson movie so rachel have you ever read 50 shades of gray and uh have you seen the movie i did both um and i think it was very interesting because i remembered the poster you were talking about with you know her bent over and the, you know, skirt and the new poster, which was on the version I just watched. Uh, she, uh, there's a, it's a very, you know, smart, smartly, this woman has her back to the camera, to the, you know, and, and there's a tie around her neck and it's a secretary, the original Mr. Gray. And I just thought that was very uh, wittily done. You know, I mean, I think, if you didn't know of secretary, which, you know, I think maybe if you were, you know, if you missed it the first time, you know, I, I think you might be intrigued by that. But although I don't think it's a better, I mean, I, that first poster was excellent. 
and I think also that image they also used in some of the promos, I guess, of her with the uh, crawling across the floor with the envelope in her mouth. I think that also was really gets at the whole thing that's going on in the in in secretary. But you know, there's so many contrasts. Basically, the entire thing. I mean, the whole premise of it. Because what struck me when I read Fifty Shades and when I watched the movie even more was that it, it, you know it's being hyped as this book about this submissive woman, but really it's about he's dominant and she's in love with him and she's doing, she wants to go along with things he wants to do to please him. And I think that you see pretty much from the beginning that, that Lee is, isn't that person. Like she's, she's not doing those things just to please him. She's doing them for her own purposes. And I think that gets to what you're talking about with the masturbation. And she tries to spank herself at one point, Anna in 50 shades, like, is not interested in any of that. No, Anastasia Steele, let's just set up a little bit here. Anastasia Steele, a college student who's, what, in Portland or something? She goes up to Seattle. She's helping out a friend who's sick, and she's going to interview this guy, Christian Gray, who's this self-made millionaire whatever, you know, idyllic kind of, uh, you know, he's the perfect catch for, for any uh, young lady who's going to college to get her MRS or whatever. And we have this budding romance because apparently her absolute awkwardness really captivates this guy. He just seems like he's a predator. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, hey, here's this girl who really doesn't know shit from Shinola. I am fascinated I by her. I always, I mean, the other question I really like just still have is like, what about her was he attracted to? And like, if her roommate hadn't gotten sick, like, would she have wound up being that person? Like, I, I you know, I, unlike the interview scene between uh, Lee and Cray and, and Secretary, like, he really was very closely observing her. I mean, so was Christian Gray, but like in a very different way, like it was much, he he was so, uh, they're so different. I mean, there are similarities through some of this setup, but like, it's just so in in that, especially in the interview, but like, he's just so not, I I don't know, like the the James Spader character is a million times more interesting as a person. Uh, I think both Anastasia and Christian Gray are just so, over the top, every single thing about them. I mean, she doesn't have a computer, even though it's set now. She doesn't know how to like use, you know, she just doesn't know anything. Like she's, she's, I wouldn't say she's dumb, but she's just this, I mean, beyond a blank slate. I mean, it's just so completely unrealistic. And he's like a billionaire who makes a hundred thousand dollars an hour. That's in the book. Um, and you know, just he's so everything about him is excessive. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Rachel, you're a writer. It must have been so painful. Writer and editor, it must have been so painful for you to try to read Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, I'm not opposed to the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon because I think that has been good for a lot of women, especially. Um, But I, what I, and and I'm not even, I don't even really fault E.L. James for the writing, which is extremely repetitive and it I was challenging for me to read, but I do think that, you know, especially when it was published in the mass, uh, you know, mass edition versus the smaller publisher where it was first published, like, I'm not sure why it was not edited more or edited, you know, at all. Like that, that's the thing that I don't really understand because I, I mean, I've been to events where E.L. James has spoken. I've met a lot of fans of 50 shades and, I don't think it's the writing that the people were gripped by. I think it was the story, like the the love story that's at the heart of the book. I don't want to sound dramatic, but I was listening to the CD of the story. And I, I mean, first off, I probably listened for, I don't even know how many hours. And there had been no sex or even, you know, uh, mention of intercourse or any kind of BDSM play or anything like that. And it had been hours of me listening to this book. And it was just all of this setup of her and her roommate and then her um, Hispanic friend and all this kind of stuff. I got so disgusted. Well, okay. Let me also say that listening to this being read to me, was one of the most infuriating things that I've ever had in my life just because she abuses adverbs like nobody's business. And it's like I'm I'm coming off of listening to like a Stephen King, you know, how to be a better writer kind of thing. And he's just like, yeah, kill all of the adverbs that you possibly can. And meanwhile, here's Anastasia doing you know saying this blithely as she it's just like every sentence had an adverb like every time someone said someone said something they had to say it a different way and she had to describe it a different way and it's just like oh my god so again i don't want to sound dramatic but at one point i finally popped the cd out and i was like if i don't get rid of this thing i'm going to keep listening to it so i rolled down the window i threw it out of my car because i was just like get this thing away from me Audible.com presents Fifty Shades of Grey, the erotic best-selling novel read by Gilbert Gottfried. My inner goddess has stopped dancing and is staring too, open-mouthed and drooling slightly. Hear it the way it was meant to be heard. Keep still, he orders, and slowly he inserts his thumb inside me, rotating it around and around, stroking the front wall of my vagina. No fisting, you say. 
anything else you object to? I agree to the fish thing, but I'd really like to claim your ass! Famed voice actor Gilbert Gottfried gives a reading that can only be described as sensual. It was so bad, and I, I really... It took me a lot to finally you know, steal myself, pun intended, to seeing the film. Because I was like, this just... If it's based on this book, it just can't be good. And I finally watched I had to watch it in two shifts. I watched it over the last couple of weeks. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it. It was like, I thought Tommy Wiseau had directed this thing. I mean, the performances, the dialogue, and just, the again, the boredom of it. I mean, the contract negotiations that go on for like a half an hour in the I movie. I mean, that's what I thought, really, watching Secretary... It just made me realize that they were able to say a lot without verbally saying, you know, like you saw what what the spanking did and the other aspects of uh, DS like did for her. Whereas, I mean, my my biggest issue with Fifty Shades is that like I just felt like Anna was not into it at all. I mean, she wasn't. It, she was really only doing it for him, and that is just not. I mean, that's not as interesting, first of all, as a as a plot line. And he is so I, I really felt like he didn't care about her as a person because there really wasn't that much to care about. But like then he presents this. I mean, in the book, it's like pages of a con pages and pages of a contract. And it's so clinical and so soulless. You know, it, it just seemed very rote, all of it. Whereas, you know, with them, I mean, even if we get the impression in secretary that he's he's done this before with, you know, that the woman accusing her like, oh, submissive, like, but still it felt very personal and nothing about the book Fifty Shades or the, the movie is, you know, felt personal. Like it didn't, I didn't feel like I had some great understanding of either one of them. No. And, you know, we, we described James Spader as playing a very enigmatic character and he plays that so well, as opposed to, the Christian Grey of Fifty Shades, who's just like, I don't do jewelry. I don't do boyfriend. I don't do cuddling. I don't do He's this. He's also never had vanilla sex. Like, like when I said over the top, I mean, everything is to the extreme extreme. And, and oh, there is no, you know, it's just so bizarre. I mean, I, I feel like he, he's like a machine or something. Like he, he doesn't, he, nothing really about him ring true. He just didn't seem believable to me uh, in either in either case. I mean, I thought the movie might take a chance, take the chance to, like, soften some of the extremities of the book, you know, where give us a better sense of why, why he was into her. And, you know, we get it. He's rich. He can buy her all these fancy things. But that isn't supposed to be why she's into him. But if it's not, it just seemed like. Why is she going through what's clearly basically torture for her? You know, that that is such a sharp contrast to what happens with Lee and in secretary. You know, it, it's not I mean, you see it on her face, even even in those first moments. It's maybe confusion, but not torture. Anastasia Steele just seems confused all the time. You know, she's what, 20, maybe? And I know I was pretty naive. I'm still pretty naive about a lot of things, but it just, she just strikes me as being very sheltered and very 
for lack of a better term, very dumb. Her negotiating the contract, when she drops the line, What are butt plugs? I lost my shit. I just laughed out loud. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. Like, okay, I can maybe understand if she doesn't, she should understand the concepts of anal fisting and vaginal fisting. And it kind of bothers me that she just, you know, strikes it right out rather than like, okay, yeah, well, I'll try this or whatever. But instead it's just like, no, no, not for me. And I'm like, well, okay. You know, it might be for you, you know, but, but yeah. And then when she drops the, what's a butt plug thing, I was just like, oh God, you gotta be kidding me on this thing. And then, yeah, Christian is just, he feels like a psychopath. Like when he shows up to the weekend that she's having with her mom, what? You know, this, it felt like Ted Bundy had entered the oh, story. Yeah. I mean, there's just nothing to me. There was nothing romantic about what, what he was doing. I mean, and he wasn't giving her space to, you know, figure it out. It was very all or nothing. Like, you're either into what I'm into and can agree to all these things or you're not. And like, I'll find someone else. I do understand to some degree why it's been so popular, but, um, you know, just secretary, there, there's so much psychologically going on with each of them, you know, and there's things we don't find out about. And that's, you know, those are things I'm curious about. There really wasn't anything I'm was curious about with them, you know, except really what he saw in her. But Rachel, come on. He's an injured little lamb that he needs this woman to understand him and take care of him and, and fulfill his needs. Oh my goodness. I mean, just, this is, I I don't even think, is this in the, I don't know if this is in the movie that his mom was, you know, on crack. Like this just. Oh yeah. yeah, That's in there. So it's just, everything is so over the top. Like, I, I, I just think it's hilarious how over the top. Every plot point, every character, everyone, every everything in it is. I don't even know what to say about that. It feels like in 10 years, people are going to be reevaluating this, like they try to reevaluate showgirls or something and be like, no, no, no. It's really just this campy comedy and everyone misunderstood it. But I don't think so. I really hope that that isn't the case. I'm I'm not looking forward to the revisionist history looking back mm-hmm. at Fifty Shades of Grey as being either a a huge feminist statement and it's actually you know Anastasia controlling everything because I think that's bullshit or b that it's really a comedy in disguise because I think it's just just a bad movie. But and yet we're getting you know two more. I mean I thought it was pretty like that's about the nicest thing I can say. Like it was. They clearly had, you know, resources to make it look beautiful, but it, but it still didn't, you know, it, it, it felt like I, I was just surprised that it didn't, you know, make some of those elements like the stalking change some of those. And just again, going back to com- contrast the two films, I mean, Maggie Gyllenhaal, I'm trying to remember, like, I know she is topless in at least one scene, like when, um, Gray kind of takes her away at the end and he's bathing her and all this kind of stuff. Really, for me, one of the most romantic mm. scenes of the film. Whereas in Fifty Shades, it feels like let's get Dakota Johnson 
you know, naked or almost naked throughout as much <laughs> of this as we possibly can, and then have our main character, our main actor, whip the shit out of her or beat her or do whatever the fuck he wants to do. I mean, that whipping scene, first off, it didn't look like he was really hitting her very hard at all. And second off, it was just like, what the hell am I watching here? Why is this even happening? It really takes a great relationship for you to be like, okay, give it all to me. You know, that kind of thing where you're just like, whatever the hell you want to do to me, you, you know, lay into me. It takes a lot more than this just superficial weirdness that they have going on in this thing. They're not the, what you see transforming between Lee and the gray and secretary in that spanking scene, you they're they're like two different. I mean, yes, they're physically together, but they're, they're just completely in their own universes in, in that scene. And in much of the film, like they're not to me, this dream couple. And then it, the way it ends, I mean, I think E.L. James was smart the way the books are done. You know, you, 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 if you like the first one, I mean, you you want to keep reading so you find out what happens. Um, I think that doesn't work as well in film where there's years in between. Yeah, the next one's not till 2017. So. Yeah, I mean, with with books that is common because you know, and they'll put them out in close succession and people will buy them, and that makes sense. But I don't think it really makes sense in film because I th- I think there will be a big drop for the next one. I mean, yes, there's still some, there's still fans, but I think a lot of people saw that just to see what would happen with how they would do it. Yeah. I'm very curious about the next one because James Foley is directing the next one and we've had him on the show before. You know, he did Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. He did after dark, my sweetie He's done so many great things. And then doing this, I'm just like, ah, I know you're better than this. So maybe he'll elevate the material. And there's a new screenwriter. Niall Leonard is co-screenwriting, or I think she's just screenwriting. Uh, I thought she might've been doing it with Foley. Uh, E.L. James's husband. Oh, really? Actually, I've read, uh, he wrote a, well, he wrote more than one, but he's written a YA novel that was very good. Like it's like a mystery. So, I mean, I don't know what that's going to, I don't know what that's going to mean for the movie necessarily, but I, I would, I, uh, Crusher is his book that I, I read and I, I would recommend that. I mean, it has nothing to do with what 50 shades is about, but, um, so maybe there's hope. I, I, I do think it's interesting that the, yeah, like the behind the scenes, uh, the, you know, not behind the scenes, but you know, the cast is the same, but, uh, or some of the cast is the same, but the director and, uh, writer are, are different. Yeah. And he's done a ton of stuff. He's written a bunch of stuff. He's directed a bunch of stuff. I mean, it's mostly episodic TV, but that's where it's at these days. So I, I can't say like, Oh, he's just a TV writer. So I'm just like, all right, cool. Yeah. Bring it on. You know, I'll, I'll maybe I'll give it another shot. I don't know. I have to say, I did try to watch uh, Fifty Shades of Black, the um, Marlon Wayans parody film of it, and that was astounding for being even worse than Fifty Shades of Grey. I saw a commercial for it, and that was that was about all I. Yeah, I don't know much. Yeah, Marlon Wayans has done some good stuff in the past, but I'll just say that this is no Requiem for a Dream. We have to talk. You mean like? 
white people. What's wrong with that? And they start throwing around all these big SAT words. I like it the black way. What you not going to do? Oh, no, what you not no, going to do? <laughs> you are not about to, oh, don't let me get to clapping, boo. Oh, hell no. See, that's communication. All right, we're going to take another break and play a trailer for next week's show. Genetic scientist Dr. Wilbur Frank just couldn't leave well enough alone. He had to tinker with the miracle of creation. He's gone and made a big, bad baby. Now the endless halls of the Shelley Institute resound with the labored, terrifying scream of the creature. As he drags his pathetic, deformed leg along and along. Constantly stalking his defenseless prey. Persistently seeking yet another victim. Unenduringly stumbling after people too stupid to run. Only Dr. Frank's brilliant, devoted, and very attractive assistants can stop the asthmatic fiend. Only the animal cunning and razor-sharp reflexes of Inspector McCoy can terminate the beast's existence. That's right. We'll be back next week with a talk about the shot on video horror film, I guess, called Science Crazed. It's definitely called Science Crazed. That's one of the things that I do know this movie is called Science Crazed, or at least that's what it ended up being released as. So, But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest. Now, Rachel, I am a big fan of your work, but for folks who don't know what you do, can you kind of explain where people can go to look for your stuff and what you do. I write erotica and I edit erotica anthologies where there's short stories written by me and lots of other people. Uh, and there, there's a range. There's some are on spanking and bondage. Some have a super specific theme like that. Some are sort of more general. There's one that I, I really like called the big book of orgasms, which is, as you probably can guess about orgasms. Um, and then I also write essays and journalism about sex. So that is what I do. It's, it's, there's, there's a lot going on, but um, pretty much sex and dating are my main uh, fields. And I, I have edited five books of spanking erotica. So you know what you're talking about when it comes to spanking. It's a topic that I am personally interested, in, but I also think it's a really rich topic for for erotica or for fiction because there, there's so many different reasons someone might be into it like for some people it's just physical i mean and some people it's it's not what they would call sexual and then for other people it is the way it is for like uh lee and secretary you know it it's a turn physical and mental turn on you know and then some people it's context specific and some people it's about role playing. So there's just so many aspects to it that I feel like I, I never get bored, you know, with it as a topic. Now I've read several of your books and I have to say that I do appreciate that you kind of focus in on certain topics. So like, I know if I'm going to buy, you know, please ma'am stories of male submission, it's going to be stories of male submission. And 
you have the opposite yeah. as well, you know, the yeah. please, sir stuff. So it's great that you have such a wide variety as well. Because, yeah, you're talking, you have spanking stories, bondage stories. Yeah. I think there's one uh, just about, uh, is it latex or rubber? But you cover the gamut. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some people kind of, if you know you're into one of those things, then you would probably appreciate a book all about that topic. And And what I try to do with them, though, I think even if you're not into that, you would still get something out of it. Like, I, I don't think they're only speaking to fetishists per se. So that that's something I try to, I don't, I try not to be too um, jargony, I guess, you know, like, like, I'll tell writers, like, explain what this is, if it's not, if people might not know what it is. So, so I have those. And then I do have some more like general ones. And I, you know, even those have BDSM in them, but also, other things. And I really, I love editing anthologies because, you know, I could sit at my computer all day and write tons of stories and they might be different from each other, but they would never be as different as what these writers from all over the world would come up with. How do you find the stories that you're putting together in these anthologies? Like if I'm editing a new one, a new anthology, I will put the call on my website, on Twitter, on, on writing, um, websites on erotica websites and i really try to cast that net you know as wide as i can i you know i don't want only people who officially write erotica to submit stories to me like i i want people who maybe write other kinds of fiction to think oh maybe i'll try writing erotica and when i said earlier that i think 50 shades has been good for certain aspects of our culture i do think that a lot of people read it and either thought okay i can write something as well or better than that, or just, you know, E.L. James wasn't a lifelong writer, you know, she sort of not fell into it, but she picked it up later in life. Like, I'm going to do that. And I think that is a positive thing. I think it's encouraged people who, whether or not they had thought about it before, um, but it's encouraged them to actually like get out there and, okay, I'm going to write something. I'm going to send it out. And I, I think that's a wonderful thing because I think erotica is a very, open genre. I mean, that there's all sorts of publishers who want new voices. And so a large part of what I do is trying to encourage people to, you know, if they want to, to write their own erotica. I mean, not everyone wants to write erotica, but a lot of people do. I, I also teach erotica writing classes in person and online. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's fascinating to see people develop their voice in, in that space. And, often like stretch their perception of what's erotic and what they can do justice to. I think a lot of people go in wanting to write autobiographical stories or semi-autobiographical, not everyone, but a lot of people. And then realizing that they can also expand on that, you know, that they're not, they're not stuck only with their own life as the basis for their erotica is really fascinating. Dear Rachel Kramer (laughs) Bustle, I never thought it would happen to me. What's the difference between erotica and pornography? That is a tough question because I, I feel like I can't really answer that. You know, I, I think, I mean, I think in shorthand, you know, I think when we say pornography, we usually think of, you know, video, uh, porn. Um, and I think we tend to think of erotica more as written, but you know, like I wouldn't be offended if someone said, Oh, your books are pornography. I wouldn't be offended per se. Cause I don't, I mean, they are on some level, but I think that the way we use those terms 
probably if someone was saying my books are porn, like for a lot of people would be saying that as some sort of epithet. So I, I just think, I don't really think that there's a way to answer that. Yeah, I don't really have a a snappy answer to that just because I think so much of that is in the eye of the beholder. I mean, there's certain things that I, you know, look for when I read erotica or that I encourage people to do um, in terms of like developing more of your characters. I think that if people are, I think if there is, there are, you know, in the bookstore, like more genres that are more going to be called pornography and maybe more going to be called erotica. Like, you know, I think if someone's looking for, more fleshed out like story you know fuller story with like beginning middle and end and all of that like they might more be looking for erotica than like porn they might be more just zeroing in on the sex scenes but i i don't really feel like i I feel like there's so much overlap between those maybe like erotica actually has somebody behind the genitalia rather than it just being the genitalia but i also think that i mean i wouldn't want to be uh, pinned down to that definition just because I think there's so I think there is still a lot of weight to both of those and I think we still I think often when people are trying to draw that distinction it's to sort of elevate like oh well then that means that erotica is better than pornography and like I don't I don't think that's the case I think some people might gravitate more towards the just you know sort of the parts that you would fast forward to in a porn movie and and some people do want the whole like backstory and like both of those are are okay now what are you working on these days i am teaching a class at olditreactor.com and i'm gearing up to teach another one and uh that's an erotic like a four-week erotica writing class and it's always really interesting because it's my sixth time and most of the time we get people from around the world and that is always interesting to just see uh how where your location and your culture affect like what you think of as sexual both in terms of like certain words or sex acts but just all sorts of things that i wouldn't have necessarily thought of so i'm doing that uh i'm doing a couple events for a new book i have out called best women's erotica of the year volume one and i'm working on editing volume two so if anyone wants information on that uh, you can go to bweoftheyear.com, which has info. Yeah, I follow you on Twitter and on Facebook, and you seem like one of the busiest people that I know. Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, I, I write a lot. Uh, <laughs> I do write a lot, but I I, I don't know. Um, it, it's like every day is different. So, you know, it's I, I, I'm lucky that because I work for myself, like I can – you know, if I wake up tomorrow and I'm like, oh, I really want to write about this thing, I can sort of change course and say, okay, I'll I'll suddenly write about this thing. I, I didn't have that freedom of time, really, when I had a full-time job. And you're not just writing erotica. You're writing stuff for, uh, you know, uh, in other genres and even, um, like, more like uh, news pieces yeah, as I well. Yeah, I do a lot of – I do some personal essays about really all kinds of things. And then I do a lot of writing for Salon about various things that are pop culture, news, sometimes politics. It really depends. And I, to me, I really – I appreciate that. Not that I don't love erotica and sex – writing, but I think I would get burned out if that was the only thing I wrote about. Like there's other things in the world that I'm interested in. 
so, so I do identify as an erotica writer, but, uh, you know, I guess first and foremost, I just consider myself a writer. When it comes to the anthologies that you put together, you tend to have stories in those as well? I, yes, I usually write one story in my anthologies, um, and then the rest are by different people. And uh, one of the things I do with my anthologies is I, I always make sure there's at least a few, sometimes more than a few, usually there's 20 to 25 stories in, in a book. And um, I I sit, set it save spaces for people I've never worked with before. And sometimes I'm publishing someone's first published erotica story. And that is a really great feeling. Like that's something I think is important for, for the genre, just to give readers new voices. And it feels really good to publish someone's first erotica story because I remember when my first erotica story was published, which wasn't that long before secretary came out. Actually, I think that happened in 2000, 16 years ago, which at the time, I did not intend or foresee that that would be my career path. <laughs> <laughs> I was just excited to write an erotica story about Monica Lewinsky. Oh, very nice. Yes, that was my first one in a book called Starfucker, which was a book of celebrity sex stories. And uh, so it, it was more timely then, although she is back in the news. Uh, so, yeah, pretty much that story is slowly how I later went on to start editing anthologies as well. Well, she has definitely been a, a favorite of mine over the years, so I can understand where where you might focus in on her. You know, it's I think it's challenging to write about real people. Uh, I, I don't know if I would do it again. I don't know. Maybe I would. But uh, that is also, like, I think something I've seen a lot of recently is humor erotica. There's been, there was a story earlier this year about this Donald Trump gay erotica satire novel that like shot up on Amazon, like became a huge bestseller. You know, I think people appreciate when a writer can take current events and eroticize and make fun of them. And the guy who did that Trump novel seems to be doing just so many bizarre erotica things. Like there's one about a T-Rex, I want to yeah. say. And a guy who cloned himself and ended up having gay sex with himself oh, yeah. or something. There's this guy, Chuck Tingle, who's doing just crazy erotica. There, there's been a couple of Trump ones, actually. Uh, and I think that's another thing. You know, when I started, you know, e-publishing wasn't really what it is today. You know, you could write something tonight and it could be on, up on Amazon, you know, in three days from now. Uh, I, I think that that has changed the landscape for writers because they can respond to things in the news. Then that becomes a whole news item in itself. Now, have you branched out to audiobooks at all? Yes. I actually, some of my audiobooks sell better than the print and ebook combined. Um, I'm not really involved in the production, but my favorite ones are narrated by this woman named Rose Caraway, who has a podcast called The Kiss Me Quicks. And She's been so amazing to work with. She's narrated, uh, it's going to be five of my um, books on audio. And she has a really um, avid fan base. Like they listen to all her podcasts. I've had people, you know, tell me, oh, I, I found out about you because of her podcast. And I just love her voice. She she does a really good job on male voices and female voices and uh the ones that are out now that she's narrated all have 69 stories 
And that's a lot of stories to narrate. You know, that's a lot of different, they're, they're all very short. Like they're not like they're, they're, that's the point of them. They're, they're, they're shorter than my normal ones in one of my books, but, uh, she's done an amazing job. And before her, like, I really didn't know how huge the audiobook market was because I'm such a reader. Like I, I don't, I do listen to podcasts, but I don't really listen to audiobooks because I, my mind starts to wander. Um, but the audiobook fans are really into like the audiobooks and they're very discerning. Like they will leave comments, um, you know, either positive or negative, but like they're very strong opinions. And I admire that. I'm like, go for it. That's great. Yeah, you know, I tend to listen to most audiobooks in the car, and I don't know if listening to erotica in the car would really be a wise choice. Probably not. So I think it's a great, you know, market, especially for the short stories, because you can listen to one or two or whatever um, at a time. Like You don't have to listen all the way through at, at one go. Where's the best place for people to keep up with you? Twitter is probably the most up-to-date. I'm at Raquelita. R-A-Q-U-E-L-I-T-A. Uh, I also have a newsletter you can subscribe to on my website at rachelkramerbustle.com. But my, my poor website is is rarely updated. So I update Twitter much more often than that. Well, I will be sure to link over to your Twitter and your website if you want over at our website, projection-booth.com. I want to thank you again, Rachel, for coming on the show. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I also want to thank everybody for listening. Everybody who's contributed to our Patreon, you know, all 26 of you. It's a pretty elite group. You know, if you want to join the club and be number 27, you can go on over to Patreon slash Projection Booth and give us your hard-earned money. That is just one more way that you can help us take over the world.
and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.